Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Um, we thank our distinguished witness for being with us today. Um, we regret the Defense Department was, uh, was unable to send a witness. This is the committee's second hearing of Congress on the Syrian conflict, uh, but it's an issue that has been raised uh, during many of our other meetings. To date, more than 400,000 people have been killed in the Syrian conflict. More than 12 million people, roughly half of all Syrians, are displaced. And the Assad regime bears overwhelming responsibility for this destruction and the extremism it has spawned. However, none of this would have been possible without the support of Iran and Russia, both of which intervened on Assad's behalf to extend influence in a region and counter US, the U.S. and its partners. With the support of the U.S. and coalition partners, the Syrian Democratic Forces succeeded in sweeping ISIS out of the capital of Raqqa in October. Of course, despite losing much of its territory in Syria and Iraq, ISIS remains a major threat. And there's also the ongoing danger posed by al-Qaeda Syrian affiliates, which maintain significant influence in opposition-controlled areas. So it's worth highlighting two recent developments. First, the U.S., Russia, and Jordan signed a memorandum of principles on November the 8th, maintaining the administrative arrangements in opposition-held areas in southwest Syria. Yet Iran and its proxies have deepened their foothold in southern Syria, potentially exacerbating the conflict's sectarian nature and risking further instability by threatening our ally, Israel. Second, for the, the past two weeks, the Assad regime has pummeled Idlib and the Damascus suburb of East Ghouta, which are the so-called de-escalation zones. These attacks have killed at least dozens of civilians and displaced tens of thousands so far. I hope Ambassador Satterfield will provide details of what the U.S. is doing to counter Iran's activities in southern Syria and assess the current prospects for resolving the Syrian civil war diplomatically. With that, I'll ask our distinguished ranking member, Ben Cardin, my friend, if he wishes to make any opening comments. Well, uh, th thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for calling uh, this hearing on the U.S. strategy in Syria after ISIS. We couldn't have a more distinguished witness before us. And Mr. Satterfield, it's wonderful to have you here, and we look forward to the, our, our discussion uh, today. Uh, there are many issues involving Syria in which this committee has primary responsibility on oversight. The use of force, the fact that we're using a 2001 AUMF, uh, and what happens, uh, many of us question whether that really applies to ISIS, but what happens after ISIS is defeated? Where is the authorization to maintain U.S. troops in Syria? We see a rapid increase in the number of U.S. troops. I believe the number now is close to 2,000, at least it's been reported about that. What is the role for U.S. development assistance working with other countries? As we all know, there's no military-only solution here. How will America diplomacy play out? What is Russia's role here uh, in the future? Will it be effective in preventing Mr. Assad from being held accountable for his war crimes? Where is our concern about Iran and developing a land bridge between Tehran and Beirut, which certainly affects Israel's security? On each of these issues, the Trump administration appears to view Syria through a military lens, make decisions on troop levels and military missions in a policy vacuum. For example, 
At a Pentagon press briefing last year, the American public was informed that the United States will sustain a conditions-based military presence in Syria after the defeat of ISIS. However, the administration has provided no information to Congress or to the American people about the conditions under which U.S. forces will leave Syria. Are those conditions political, military? I hope that to gain insight into this issue during the hearing today, because our young men and women in uniform and their families deserve to be fully informed as to what they're fighting for and when the fight will be over. I am deeply disappointed, and I share the chairman's uh, concern, uh, that the Department of Defense declined this committee's invitation to testify. This committee has jurisdiction over the authorization for the use of military force and has already spent significant time debating whether the 2001 AUMF covers successors entities like ISIS, given that the authorization drafted almost two decades ago was intended to provide authority to target al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Now the administration is arguing that even after ISIS is defeated, our forces will still remain in Syria to make sure that ISIS cannot return. At the same time, U.S. forces have significantly increased without any public explanation. Considered together, the notion that the U.S. forces must stay in Syria to mitigate against ISIS return while simultaneously ramping up U.S. forces seems like the prelude to another forever war with no congressional authorization. If we learned anything from the experiences in the last decade, it is that the military fight is not even half the battle. Long-term sustainable ends of to conflicts demand political agreements, international donors, stabilization activities, reconciliation initiatives, development expertise, accountability of local leadership, and above all, patience, constant dip diplomatic and political engagement. There is no sustainable solution in Syria, even after ISIS is defeated, without a long-term political solution. Now the people of Syria, so many of whom risk their lives and livelihoods to challenge the Assad regime, are forced to look to Sochi and Astana for help rather than Washington and Geneva. This is yet another arena where the Trump administration is willing to cede ground and influence to Russia. I hope the report I released yesterday on Russia's challenges to democracy and egregious tactics it uses to stabilize other countries is not lost on those committed to a stable, prosperous Middle East. Working through Moscow, we only bring further instability, more aligned Iranian influence, increased human suffering, and the same old top-down corruption. Meanwhile, Russia is enabling Iran and Iran's militia to make themselves at home in Syria and settle, setting the stage to exploit lucrative reconstruction contracts. Russia's President Vladimir Putin, the man who ensured Bashar al-Assad's survival, is flying around the Middle East with completing, East, com, competing, uh, completing deals for base access and weapon sales. With the United States absent from the scene, governments across the region are rolling out the red carpet for Mr. Putin. This is not a situation that benefits the United States or the people of the region who want to look to the West but are compelled to look East. So I hope, Mr. Chairman, that today's hearing will help us clarify some of these points so we have a better understanding of a winnable strategy in Syria. Thank you. It's rare that I would um, make comments after yours. I will say that uh, there's a lot of progress being made on the AUMF, and, and uh, I think we're going to be in a place really soon to, to have a markup, and we're doing it in a way to, to engender support and input from members on both sides of the aisle. Um, as it relates to uh, 
what's happened in Syria. To me, um, uh, after watching our, our, our people in action, I think what we saw here was a seamless handoff between one administration to another. And um, obviously, the generals were given a little more flexibility um, on the, on the, uh, with the new administration. But what I saw was a seamless handoff where we were very successful um, in doing away with the caliphate. So to me, this is, uh, thus far, as it relates to ISIS, been something that has been successful. Now we're left with uh, a country that we've got to figure out how to do, how to deal with. And I want to thank. Um, I want to thank the ambassador for being with us today. He's the assistant secretary, acting assistant secretary of state for Near Eastern Affairs, Ambassador David Satterfield. He's one of our most distinguished diplomats. He most recently served as director general of the multinational force of observers and observers in the Sinai Peninsula, and previously served as U.S. ambassador to Lebanon. We thank you so much for being here. Look forward to your testimony. Um, and I know uh, vigorous questions. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to testify today. Uh, we have made significant progress since 2014 when ISIS first emerged, swept across Iraq and Syria that summer, inflicted suffering on thousands of civilians in the region with impact far beyond. However, despite the advances made, our job is not yet done. We remain focused on the enduring defeat of ISIS and other terrorist organizations, countering Iranian influence and malign behaviors, preventing the use of chemical weapons, ensuring the safety of Syria's neighbors, and ultimately resolving the Syrian conflict and humanitarian crisis through the de-escalation of violence and a political resolution, and there must be a political transformation and resolution that is in accordance with UN Security Council Resolution 2254. As of today, coalition-backed efforts have liberated over 98% of the territory previously controlled by ISIS. With over 7.5 million people now free from ISIS domination in Iraq and in Syria, while Russia may deem and announce that the fight in ISIS in Syria is over. The U.S. and our coalition partners do not regard this as a finished effort. The U.S. is committed to the total and enduring defeat of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, other terrorist groups in Syria and the region, ensuring that they cannot regenerate and return. Thanks to the generosity of the Congress and the American people, the U.S. has provided nearly $7.5 billion in humanitarian assistance since the start of the Syrian crisis, about 1.5 billion over the last year. Now this critical aid assists at least 4 million Syrians in need every month inside that country. In eastern Syria, with support from our colleagues in the Department of Defense, the State Department and USAID lead recovery efforts designed to help consolidate our military gains, provide life-saving assistance to conflict afflicted civilians, and stabilize the liberated areas. As this committee well knows, unlike in Iraq, we do not have a trusted government partner to work with. We are not working with, and we will not work with, the Assad regime. Until there is a credible political process, and by credible we mean supported by the Syrian people, that can lead to a government chosen by the Syrian people, 
without Assad at its helm at the end of the process, the U.S. and our allies will not support large-scale efforts to reconstruct Syria. On July 9, over six months ago, the U.S., Jordan, and Russia made an arrangement, the Memorandum of Principles in its initial form, to reduce violence in southwest Syria. On November 8, the U.S., Russia, and Jordan signed a formal memorandum codifying principles that built on and strengthened this earlier effort. This memorandum further defines our efforts, most importantly enshrines the commitment of the U.S., Russia, and Jordan that non-Syrian foreign fighters, including Iranian and Iranian proxy forces, Hezbollah, must withdraw from areas within the ceasefire lines delineated by this agreement. On November 11th, President Trump, President Putin issued a joint statement on Syria in Da Nang, Vietnam. They endorsed this memorandum of principles, and they reaffirmed the U.S. and Russian commitment to a pluralistic and free Syria. Now, they also reaffirmed their commitment to Syria's sovereignty, unity, independence, territorial integrity, and non-sectarian character, and they urged all Syrian parties to participate genuinely, actively, in the Geneva political process. On November 29th, Russia had to coerce the Syrian regime to attend meetings in Geneva. The opposition, however, came prepared and ready to discuss matters. All of these efforts are fully in line with implementation of UN Security Council Resolution 2254, which calls for a new Syrian constitution and for parliamentary and presidential elections under UN supervision in which all Syrians, including those displaced outside Syrian borders, can participate. A stable Syria absolutely requires the departure of President Assad and his regime. They have inflicted suffering and countless deaths on the Syrian people, including use of chemical weapons. This regime is a magnet for terror. It is incapable of democratically leading the whole of Syria. We, our allies, have come to Russia with a path towards a Syrian political transition, towards a political solution on many occasions. And we call on Russia again today to pressure the regime to work seriously towards a political resolution to this conflict. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome to take your questions. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I was going to typically defer uh, to, to Senator Cardin first. I do because of the last portion of your statement. Um, we are now not demanding that Assad leave. Instead, as I understand it, we're embracing the UN resolution as Putin has recently done. Is that correct? That's correct, Mr. Chairman. And that would mean that there would then be uh, an election that would take place? There would be a constitutional reform and revision process, and then there would be an electoral process. That electoral process would be fully under UN monitoring and supervision. And is it true that uh, it's my sense that people like you and others believe that if that process occurs, as has been laid out and as supported right now by, by Russia, you believe that uh, the way Assad would go would through a democratic election where he would lose? Mr. Chairman, we cannot conceive of a circumstance which a genuinely fair electoral process overseen by the UN with participation of the Syrian displaced community could lead to a result in which Assad remained at the helm. Yes. Is there any chance it would actually be in Syria a real election that people actually had the opportunity to vote and it wasn't uh, corrupt? This is that goal, exactly what Russia and the international community 
are formally committed to see achieved. The task to make it real, of course, is the challenge before us all. Thank you so much. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador, thank you. And just about everything you said, I agree with. And I like the way that you emphasize the importance of Mr. Assad leaving. Uh, but let me just express some skepticism here with Russia's involvement and try to understand how uh, we are prepared to deal with what is likely to come about. And that is uh, Russia's uh, goals of not having a free Syria. They want to have a footprint in Syria. Uh, they're comfortable with Mr. Assad. Uh, they certainly are, it looks like they are setting him up to be immune from uh, being held accountable for his war crimes. How do we, and I agree with Senator Corker's inference that it is beyond uh, reasonable expectations that Syria would have a, a, tr a traditionally free and fair elections in the near future, that that would be extremely difficult to pull off. So how do we minimize Russia's influence in the outcome of a Syrian-negotiated settlement? Senator, there are two things that we do to achieve that goal, and I, I don't disagree with any of the points that you've just made. They form the basis for our own approach and understanding. We have an international consensus at this moment, uh, which is widely supported, that there should be no granting of legitimacy, authentication, uh, to what has happened in Syria minus that credible constitutional reform and electoral process. That is no certification of victory, either for Moscow or for the regime from the international community. That's first tool. Second tool is money. Syria needs reconstruction. The bill varies in estimate, but let's say between 200 and 300 billion plus to reconstruct. The international community has committed itself not to provide that reconstruction assistance until those goals, constitutional reform, UN-supervised elections are realized. Now, that's a powerful incentive because our assessment is Russia, Iran, Syrian regime don't have those funds, aren't going to be able to contribute, but they want a certain stability and they want authentication. And that's what we're withholding until we see the progress made. And the second and final comment I'd make is translating everything we do, U.S. and the international community, through the U.N., through the legitimacy of the Security Council and Resolution 2254. This is the counter or the counterweight to Sochi, to Russian initiatives which would control and contain a track on their own. It won't have legitimization minus the validation of the Secretary General and the UN. Let me add one more point that this committee has been particularly strong on, the United States Senate and Congress has been strong on, and U.S. diplomats have been strong on traditionally. That is, that Mr. Assad must be held accountable for his activities. And that cannot be compromised in a final political settlement. Are you still committed to that goal? We are, Senator. Thank you. Uh, let me uh, mention an, another area that has been a major concern, and that is Iran's footprint in Syria. Uh, it seems pretty likely that Russia would be sympathetic to Iran having a footprint in Syria moving forward. Uh, there is great concern uh, among both Jordan and Israel about their security interests with Iran's presence in Syria. 
What type of game plan do we have to make sure that we minimize uh, that uh, risk factors and that we protect our traditional security arrangements with both Israel and Jordan? Senator, the presence, the activities of Iran in and through Syria, by through Syria, I mean a greater qualitative enablement of the Hezbollah threat in Lebanon, is the primary strategic challenge that we and our partners face over the future in and through Syria, and I would add Iraq as well. We would hope Russia would recognize that Russia's long-term strategic interests, risk assessment, risk calculus, should not weigh Iran as a positive factor, that Iran poses a challenge and a threat to Russian interests as well. Do you think we could convince Russia of that? I, mean, I, I, I agree with you, but I just don't think, I think it's just the reverse with Mr. Putin. I think he likes having a proxy of Iran in, uh, in Syria. Senator, I think the focus has been right now uh, from the Russian point of view on stabilization in Syria, securing the success, victory of the regime, uh, putting an end to the chaos and violence there which the Russians see as threatening their interests. The question is at what price over the long term. And an enhancement in a permanent sense of Iran's role there cannot serve any regional or trans-regional security interests. But you asked what we're doing about this challenge. The first step was the defeat of ISIS. As long as ISIS remained a potent fighting force in Syria, the bandwidth, the space to deal with these broader strategic challenges, including Iran, and of course, Assad and the regime, simply wasn't there. But that bandwidth is being freed up now. With the UN process, with international support for a credible electoral and constitutional reform process, we see political transition in Syria as a potentially achievable goal. We don't underestimate the challenges ahead. This is going to be hard, very hard to do. Assad will cling to power at almost every cost possible. But with respect to Iran, we will treat Iran in Syria and Iran's enablement of Hezbollah as a separate strategic issue. How do you deal with it? You deal with it in all places that it manifests itself, which is not just Syria, but Iraq, Yemen, the Gulf, other areas where Iran's malign behaviors affect our and our allies' national interests. Difficult challenge, but not an impossible challenge, and it is one we are seized with right now. But having a politically transformed Syria will in and of itself be a mitigating and minimizing factor on Iran's influence, and the opposite is also true. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Before turning to Senator Young, um, what the Russian concerns about Assad, do you think there's a you think Russia cares greatly about Assad himself or just having a Syrian leader, period, that they can deal with? Senator, I've worked with the Syrian puzzle since 1983. My view is that the Russians above all, as the Soviets before them, treasure stability and fear chaos. Assad represented, represents in their eyes, I believe, a source of stability at a very high price, and we would argue ultimately instability as a generator of further violence, radicalism, and terror. But I think that's the prime motive. It's not Assad qua Assad. It is stability and an end to threatening chaos. <coughs> Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman, and good to see you again, Mr. Ambassador. Thanks for being here today. I think a lot of Hoosiers will be watching uh, this hearing actually with great interest. I, on January 2nd, attended 
a uh, ceremony for the, uh, uh, a, the 38th Sustainment Brigade of the Indiana National Guard. We're sending 250 of our best men and women in uniform uh, into Kuwait to support uh, our operations in Iraq and Syria. And uh, these Hoosiers, all Americans, demand the, the best possible strategy uh, for our operations there. I asserted in a letter to Secretary Tillerson uh, back in February of uh, 2017 that my own belief is, is that if we're going to, in an enduring way, defeat terrorist groups, uh, we're going to have to address the legitimate concerns of Sunni communities on the ground and, and governance needs moving forward, something that's already been spoken to. This won't be easy, I understand, but do you believe the current strategy is optimized and properly resourced so far in order to ensure that uh, we accomplish those objectives? Senator, you're quite right in signaling that without an addressal of uh, Sunni concerns, there's going to be a resurgence of violence. Some of those concerns uh, are being addressed. Others can be addressed better by governments in the area. But the issue itself very much forms part of our dialogue with every state in the region and with our partners from outside. There are systemic, long-standing generators of extremism and violence in this troubled region, and they cannot be ignored in any instant strategy to deal with particular eruptions. Quite right. Is, is, is there a particular milestone or two that you're watching to ensure that our existing strategy remains on track? There is. Um, we watch very carefully uh, Iranian malign behaviors throughout the region. You and I have discussed uh, Yemen in particular yes. uh, in this regard, but there are other places that we watch. In terms of our aggressive efforts to constrain, to roll back these efforts, to deny Iran the ability to deploy, proliferate, uh, support these efforts, uh, we are more actively engaged today uh, than at any point uh, in the past 15 years. It is a big challenge ahead of us, and it's a challenge on many fronts, and we need the full cooperation of our partners in the region, as well as in Europe and elsewhere, as we move ahead. But yes, there is indeed a strategy here. Uh, you mentioned Yemen. You opened the door. So I just want to thank you and your team for uh, your excellent diplomatic work on, on this front. Do you have a, a really quick update on humanitarian assistance and its delivery or lack thereof? Uh, I do indeed, uh, Senator, and we very much appreciate your efforts and those of your colleagues uh, in helping us with this uh, initiative. Uh, we have now full access to commercial and humanitarian goods through Hodeida and Salif ports. That means in particular fuel moving. We have already seen a reduction in the price and an increase in the availability of basic fuels throughout Yemen, as we expected would be the case. Uh, we have engaged with the Saudis. I spoke with the foreign minister only yesterday uh, to assure that there would be no further closures of these ports. Uh, and we will continue to work over the days ahead uh, with the Saudis, with the Emiratis on this issue. Uh, the cranes. The four U.S.-funded uh, World Food Program cranes should arrive at 10 p.m. Uh, on this Sunday evening and be installed the next day in Hodeida. That is a major accomplishment, uh, and we all deserve, including the Congress credit, for having Fantastic. made that possible. Thank you. 
Um, in your written testimony, you write that Assad uh, has inflicted suffering in countless deaths, including the heinous use of chemical weapons, including sarin gas, against his own people. You also write of the need to diminish uh, the Iranian proxy Hezbollah and Iranian forces in Syria. Um, is it accurate that Iranian forces and proxies uh, uh, are in Syria, at least in part, to help keep a man in power who's murdered many of his own people with sarin gas. Uh, that is absolutely correct, Senator. Okay, I hope the people of Iran heard that. Uh, this radical and oppressive regime in Tehran is not only failing to respect the human rights of their own people, the civil rights of their own people, but they're also they're also using the resources uh, that uh, are causing some of this ferment uh, in Tehran and, and, and have driven uh, much of, uh, of these, recent, uh, these recent protests uh, to, to keep a man in power who has murdered his own people. And that's, I think, notable in light of the history uh, where Saddam Hussein used gas against Iranian civilians back in the 80s. Thousands of Iranian citizens were killed through the use of chemical weapons, inflicting um, some, just some horrible uh, scars uh, uh, on, on that nation, on many families. And uh, I think the people of uh, Iran need to know that their own regime is complicit in and actually directly involved in these activities. Senator, I'm glad you raised that, because one of the most interesting aspects of the statements made, uh, slogans used by the protesters in Iran over the past two weeks, has indeed focused on the involvement of Iranian money and Iranian forces outside of Iran. And one of the protesters' slogans was, not Syria, not Iraq, have a thought for us, that is, Iranian citizens at home. So I think there is a recognition, perhaps more than we had assumed, of exactly what the nature of Iran's external engagements are and what the price being paid for those engagements really is. Thank you, Ambassador. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ambassador. Let me uh, just say, in your opening statement, you noted that last year the State Department announced a memorandum of principles between the United States, Russia, and Jordan that basically included a commitment to, quote, remove Iranian-backed forces, including Hezbollah and other irregular forces. Now, since then, we have seen Iran maintain its land bridge into Syria through Iraq, increase its own and proxy forces deeper into Syrian territory, pushing up to the border with Israel. Meanwhile, Russia has subsequently described Iran's presence in Syria as, quote, legitimate, insists that they never committed to supporting the withdrawal of Iranian forces. Last month, uh, National Security Advisor McMaster indicated that as much as 80% of Assad's fighting force may be provided by Iran, and Iran seems keen on pursuing a land bridge, uh, continuing land bridge to Iraq. So, uh, I don't understand. I, I heard your testimony that you didn't have, that we, the United States, didn't have enough bandwidth. But is it still the policy of the United States to actively remove Iranian-backed forces from Syria? Senator, it is absolutely our policy 
to see Syria able to move forward free of all foreign forces. And that specifically includes Iranian forces, uh, fighters brought in uh, from outside Iran to fight with them, and Hezbollah elements. Uh, and, yes. and so what is, uh, some of us are waiting to see the administration's Iran strategy, to be very honest with you. Uh, we have, uh, this Congress gave uh, the administration some rather sweeping authorities uh, with strong congressional approval, many which have not been used yet. Many which have not been used yet. So uh, we're waiting to see what this, what this strategy is, but uh, how can we effectively counter Iran now after essentially focusing elsewhere? It seems that uh, our forthcoming counter-Iran strategy is a contradiction to what we've been doing in Syria. How do you reconcile those? Hezbollah has emerged stronger and as a more viable military force in Lebanon. How's that going to factor into the Iran strategy? Senator, it was the violence precipitated by ISIS, uh, the chaos that resulted in Syria as a product of that violence and seizure of territory that allowed Iran, allowed Hezbollah and other elements allied with Iran to advance their interests and their physical presence. It is why the elimination of the ISIS threat was the critical uh, condition precedent to being able to credibly deal with Iran. But with respect to the borders and to the land bridge issue, uh, we see minimal movement by Iran across land borders. And that is in significant measure a product of our own presence, our own activities, not just on the Syrian side of that border, but also on the Jordanian and, in particular, Iraqi side. And Iraq cannot be eliminated as a critical element in our Iran strategy. We have worked very closely uh, with Prime Minister Abadi, with the legitimate forces of his government in Baghdad to counter Iranian aspirations. And this has been a hard struggle, particularly over the period since the Kurdish referendum. Right. Now, let me just ask you this. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you say there isn't much of a land border, but uh, I, I would beg to differ that, that, there, either, that there isn't much or there isn't any. The reality is this is a, a constant challenge. But let me ask you, I asked you specifically uh, whether it's the policy of the United States to actively remove Iranian-backed forces from Syria. Uh, how so? You said you gave me a generic answer. We don't want to see any foreign entities inside of Syria. Uh, well, Russians are a foreign entity inside of Syria, for example. So specifically as it relates to Iran, uh, if that is the policy of the United States to diminish its influence uh, and to remove Iranian-backed forces from Syria, uh, how so? With force? With troops? With uh, diplomacy? Which one of those? Senator, it's a combination of measures. First and foremost, it is aggressive sanctioning and measures undertaken by the U.S. and our partners to deny the physical tools, the ability to move assets, and the ability to finance Iran's well, when, activities. When are, when are those going to happen? Senator, because with, we, we've, gi we've given the administration a whole new host of sanctions that they simply have not used. And so I don't, I, you know, if we didn't have the bandwidth then, I certainly hope we have it now because we're, at, we're engaged here after the fact. 
a much more difficult set of circumstances to change the dynamics on the ground as it relates to Iran. So I hope we're going to see the pursuit of the sanctions that we gave. We gave sanctions on ballistic missiles. We gave sanctions on human rights violations. We gave sanctions for the destabilization of the reason, region for promoting terrorism. I have to be honest with you. I haven't seen those used, so it's time to use them. Senator, I would be delighted to provide you with the list of designations and sanctions invoked by this administration. It is an unprecedented quantity of such sanctions. We'll be happy to detail. Uh, I, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see the details uh, because I think much of what was done uh, was, was done uh, under previous authorities. There are more far-reaching authorities that the administration has, and I can't wait for them to use them so we can actually get to an Iran strategy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Ambassador. Appreciate you being here today. We talk about U.S. seeing Assad as chaos, Russia seeing Assad as stability. What, if any, shared interests are there between the United States and Russia right now in terms of Syria? When we discuss exactly this issue, where are areas of consonance with the Russians? Uh, the first thing we come up with is you want to see stability? You're concerned about chaos and the projection of risk, violence, Sunni extremism to the Caucasus, to Russia proper? All right. We understand that. We can share it. But how does the perpetuation of a regime whose behaviors have provided the fuel for the eruption of that Sunni violence and extremism serve any medium or long-term Russian interests? And it's this point that we continue to reinforce with our colleagues in Russia. We don't understand the long-term strategic thinking of Russia if there is a long-term mm -hmm. strategy being applied here. But whether or not they concur or agree in this, our position with respect to Russia is we cannot and will not legitimize a Russian alternate political process which is independent of and not supported and endorsed by the Secretary General. You know, it's interesting because I think there was a very good story. Uh, Voice of America did a report about Russian foreign minister defends this Syria uh, peace conference. And you mentioned uh, what's coming up this month in Sochi, the, the, the efforts there. I just wanted to have you explain and talk to us a little bit about, um, about that. You know, Lavrov has said, hey, this is going to be great. There's broad support among the Syrian people. We have 40 Syrian rebel groups saying Russia is trying to circumvent the UN peace process. They will, uh, they will not attend the Sochi uh, talks. Um, you know, the rebels say the mediator in the, in the peace talks has to be a neutral and, and, and honest broker, but yet Russia says, hey, no, that's not the problem. Let's call, come to Sochi and solve the problem. I, I view this as a way away from the United Nations and, and not what we're looking at. Could you talk a little bit about what they're trying to do at the end of this month and why we should not, what, in our position? Senator, what the Russians claim, and they've claimed this to the Secretary General, to the Secretary, uh, to the President, is that they have no intention through Sochi or any other channel of going beyond 2254 and the UN process in Geneva. Well, that's fine rhetoric, but it needs to be demonstrated. And there are significant doubts, reservations, about whether Sochi is a one and done and translate outcomes to Geneva, which is one possible option, or is like Astana, a second track, nominally part of Geneva, but in practice under Russian control and direction, and only informing Geneva and the UN as outcomes are derived. It is that latter option which I believe the Secretary General would not and cannot support, and certainly we could not either. 
Because uh, the Voice of America goes on to report the, the, the UN brokered peace negotiations in Geneva right now involving Russia, Turkey, Iran. Uh, you made only minor progress toward ending this, the, the issues there. And it does seem that there's trying to be a hijacking of efforts by Sochi and, well, by the Russians to turn attention away and maybe even delay, slow down, and prevent the kind of progress that you're looking for uh, in Geneva. Senator, there is a, a tactic in, in other areas of uh, you don't have any ability to move your process forward, so only we can take charge. Well, that's a setup because we, Russia, have ensured that the regime will not take a serious position in Geneva. And we see that. There is a real test before the Russians, and I don't say this in a confrontational manner, just as a factual statement. The Russians have significant influence over the Syrian regime. If they wish to demonstrate their credibility to the United Nations, put the U.S. aside, they have every opportunity to do it in the next few days and weeks in Switzerland by demonstrating that the regime is prepared to seriously negotiate, not just show up, with the opposition. And we'll all see that, and we'll be able to make judgments based upon it, but we have not seen it to date. So getting back to the, kind of the first question and, and, and concluding with this is, do we right now have any shared interest in Syria with the Russians? We continue to seek demonstrations that the Russians do recognize that beyond the defeat of ISIS, which is a shared interest and one that we don't challenge, uh, defeat of al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda-affiliated elements, another shared view. Then on the big issue, Iran, the political direction of Syria, that we do have a shared view, and, and that remains to be shown. Thank you, Thank you Mr. President. Okay. Senator Chairman. Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Thank you for the upgrade. Thank you, sir. Go ahead. Um, I would actually like to begin by adding my concern to those that you and the ranking member have expressed about the unwillingness of the Department of Defense to send a witness to this hearing. I serve on the Armed Services Committee, and we have heard consistently from Secretary Mattis that he and Secretary Tillerson talk on a regular basis, almost daily, and that they are working closely together to address the conflict areas we have in the world. So it seems to me that it's in everyone's interest to present that united picture before Congress, as well as to do it privately. And so I think we should lodge um, a very deliberate, send a letter expressing our concern to uh, the Department of Defense about their unwillingness to be part of this hearing. And I hope you and the ranking member will consider doing that. Thank you. Um, Ambassador, thank you for being here. Do I understand from your testimony and from what you submitted in written form, that our strategy in Syria is to defeat ISIS and then to successfully implement the memorandum of principles and the UN Security Council Resolution 2254. Is that what we're assuming is our strategy? And if that's the case, can you help me understand how we think we're ever going to get 2254 implemented um, without some further action with Russia or on the ground in Syria that will allow us to make progress and force people to understand how we conclude this conflict? 
Senator, our strategy in Syria is based on many elements. Defeat of ISIS is certainly uh, the first uh, out of the box. It's a necessary precondition. Second element is basic stabilization. Bring down the level of fighting, particularly in the north and the northeast. Stabilize the humanitarian situation. Okay, I guess I would stop you there and mm -hmm. ask you how how we think that's going to happen because recent reports show that um, the fighting is actually now moving into Idlib province where, where there had been for a period of time a lack of conflict. Uh, Senator, the northeast is not Idlib. The northeast is the area controlled by the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, partnered by the United States, the north and the northeast. Idlib is in the west or northwest. Well, Idlib is a deeply troubled area with an al-Qaeda affiliate uh, largely in control. We okay. are working on stabilization in the north and the northeast right now, very successfully and with a minimum of U.S. physical presence, about 2,000 U.S. military and seven, soon to be 10, uh, foreign service colleagues. This is a highly efficient operation and it's working on the ground. But those are only the first steps. The 2254 political process, the process that the entire international community of like-minded states has signed on to, is the key. It's the key to addressing Assad and his departure. It is the key to resolving the question of foreign forces and Iranian influence. And what are our levers? What are our tools to move that forward? They are denial of legitimacy and authenticity. Uh, to any claim of victory by the regime or its supporters in Moscow or Tehran, and the withholding of reconstruction funds which are vital to the regime and we think Moscow's interests over the long term. Those are potent levers. Uh, I agree that that certainly sounds good, but it's still hard for me to see what progress we have made on the ground that, other than against ISIS, which I would certainly agree um, we've done very well, but how we're going to get to that political solution. And I guess the other question that I have for you is it's, there was a recent report that shows that a number of top U.S. officials, Brett McGurk, um, it lists you as one of those, favor a limited approach to Syria that focuses on defeating ISIS, countering Iranian activities, and then winding down our activities in Syria and leaving um, Moscow's diplomatic efforts to address the remaining challenges. Is that, do you think that's an accurate report? And, and why are we interested in leaving the field to Moscow? Senator, with all due respect to the publication in which uh, that quote appeared, it is not accurate with respect to any of the individuals, uh, myself and my colleagues included. That does not represent our position because it excludes a critical element, the need for a political transition which requires international as well as strong U.S. backing. It does not uh, take into consideration the detailed exchanges with Moscow at the level of the president, the secretary, I and my colleagues, which are very much focused on what Russia needs to do if it is to be seen at all as credible uh, in the eyes of us, the like-minded, and in the eyes of the United Nations. And that is, as I noted uh, to Senator Barossa, a challenge still out there. So no, those are not accurate quotes. Well, thank you. I appreciate your clarifying that. I'm still not clear on how we think we're going to move Russia to accomplish what you've laid out in terms of Syria. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I, before turning to Senator Johnson, it, it is interesting as I listen to questioning. I mean, there seems to be a, on one hand, concerns by some members of the committee that we have 2,000 troops there, and then concerns by some members of our committee that uh, we may be leaving um, the, the terrain to Syria. I hope as we move along with questioning, we can um, have more of a, a central thought here, but I, I do observe that there seems to be a push and a pull. And I would say again that what I've seen happen in Syria is um, a seamless handoff from one administration to another, and as a country, uh, tremendous success as it relates to uh, dealing with a caliphate. Um, and to me, it's something, that component of it, regardless of how you may feel about either administration, should be something we should cherish and celebrate and now figure out what we do going forward. But it was a continuation of a policy that led to success. I, so. I would just point out, Mr. Chairman, if you would allow me, we need to know what the military mission is. We need to know what the diplomatic mission is. We need to know now that ISIS is, is losing its caliphate and its threat has become less severe, what is the military mission recognizing that we need a, a, a diplomatic and economic solution for the people of Syria? And that doesn't necessarily require troop levels be increased. Yeah. Um, well, again, if you would, I mean, the as I understand the troops that are there, they're not involved in, in combat, is that correct? Senator, there are still combat activities going on in the middle Euphrates Valley. The campaign against the so-called caliphate, that is the territorially structured presence of ISIS, is not over yet. That campaign continues. The level of fighting has significantly diminished since the days of urban conflict in Mayadeen, Raqqa, Deir Azor. But the fight goes on. And there but, is but combat most activity. of their efforts are in support of those that are actually on the front lines. They are in facilitation of the SDF efforts who have consistently carried this fight since the beginning. Very good. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'm looking at you, Mr. Ambassador, first of all, thanks for your service. I'm, I'm looking at your written testimony to confirm what I thought I heard you say, that uh, reconstructing Syria is going to cost somewhere in the order of two to $300 billion. Is that, is that that's, that's a general international estimate, sir. So who has that kind of money? I can tell you who doesn't. The Syrian regime, Moscow, and Tehran. Who does? The international community, companies, international financial institutions. They've got the money collectively, but that money is not going to flow into a Syria which has not gone through a political transformation and transition. Does the State Department estimate how much it's costing on an annual basis Iran and separately Russia to be engaged in Syria? We can get back to you in another setting uh, with estimates on those numbers. Would that be classified or you just don't have any fingertips? Okay. Um, Senator Menendez was obviously talking about uh, potentially new sanctions. I just want to go back in history, uh, the resistance of the last administration to impose the sanctions on Iran based on their, their nuclear activities. Uh, how long did it take those sanctions in complete cooperation with our partners to really take effect to bring Iran to the, the table? Senator, it took some three years of concerted effort. Uh, first, to bring Russia and China, who are critical consumers, uh, and thus valuable in the Iranian economy to come on board, and then to progressively tighten through continuous periodic review of the sanctions 
against the hydrocarbon sector. That was the hardest of all the challenges, to get full consensus on actively sanctioning, to the disadvantage of members like China and Russia, of hydrocarbons. When we got it, it finally worked. So having relaxed those sanctions, uh, allowing, by the way, do we have a final figure, pretty good estimate of how many dollars have flowed into Iran because of the JCPOA? Uh, we can provide that to you as well. It's in excess of $100 billion? Uh, we can provide you that number. Okay. Um, any chance of having the same kind of coordinated uh, leveling of sanctions in the next round? If, if Iran, in, in other words, in, in terms of putting pressure on Iran to get out of Syria, I mean, any chance of having that same kind of coordination? Uh, very frankly, Senator, no. I assess the chances of such coordination to be extraordinarily slim. Russia would not agree to participate. So we can, we can talk about all these sanctions that uh, the Congress has provided this administration to level against Iran to have some kind of magic of effect of getting them out of there, but the fact that we entered the Iran nuclear agreement, we relaxed those sanctions. Uh, Iran has not used that money to benefit its people, obviously, based on the protests. They've instead used that to fund their adventurism in places like Syria, correct? Uh, Senator, um, Iran has always demonstrated uh, an aggressive attempt pre-JCPOA and post-JCPOA to project its influence, to support its proxies, uh, to conduct what we would call malign activities uh, throughout the region. Uh, it is not a factor of the JCPOA. My point being is sanctions against Iran is not going to get them out of there, correct? Unless one was capable of assembling the kind of unified international regime, sanctions regime, which means Russian full participation to affect hydrocarbon flows, something that cut and hurt Iran deeply at the level of the Guard Corps and the clerical regime at the top, uh, I believe while we are obliged to sanction, to designate as aggressively as we can Iranian actors and activities and institutions to get the kind of effect that we saw on the nuclear enrichment program, that's going to be a very difficult goal. So Russia's pretty well in control of the situation there with Assad in place. Um, only with Russian cooperation are we going to get rid of Assad. Only if we get rid of Assad is any kind of money going to be flowing into Syria. I don't see any of those things happening anytime soon, do you? As I said, this is a difficult challenge, but you talked about the factors involved here. We believe that Moscow wants to see more than a transitory faux stability uh, under the fist of Assad established in Syria. To get that, if that's really what Moscow wants, then they're going to need international support, reconstruction, and legitimization. And that's not going to come under the present circumstances. So we'll need Russia to cooperate with us to get Iran out first. We're going to need Russia to put pressure on the regime to abide by Security Council Resolution 2254 and participate in political discussions in Geneva. Yes, Senator. Why should Russia do that? Because minus such engagement, there's going to be no money coming into Syria. There's going to be no legitimization from the broad international community, either for Russia or for Syria. And we believe that is meaningful to Russia. And thank you for your insight, Mr. Chairman. Senator Markley. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank you, Ambassador. Uh, uh, I note that you've referred several times to the UN Security Council 2254. 
And when I, I take a look at Article 4 of that, it has this wonderful vision of a Syrian-led, a Syrian-led process that will produce a new constitution, free and fair elections, they'll be held within 18 months, 18 months has long expired, that would be administered by the UN, that it would include the diaspora in the, in the voting, that it would meet international standards of accountability and transparency, all wonderful and beautiful. But we have now a Geneva process sponsored by the UN, and we have this Astana uh, process that is sponsored by Russia with Iran and Turkey involved. Um, the cooperation of Syria in, in the Geneva process is uh, uh, minimal, to say the, the, the best. Uh, the UN is not involved in Astana. It just seems like the, the, there's no real traction towards the vision laid out in 2254. There's a lot of chaos and, and um, messiness, I guess. Uh, how, does, how do we get from this, now that kind of this goal of cooperating to, to assault ISIS, which was kind of a clear ob ob objective, now that that is largely accomplished, how, does, how do we actually get traction towards the vision of 2254? Sandra, it's a mix of, of approaches. Uh, the first is to try to engage um, both in a positive and a negative sense of the Russians to undertake the responsibilities that they've committed to, committed to in Da Nang with the President, committed to in their own support for Resolution 2254, and committed to directly at the highest levels of the Russian government to the Secretary General of the UN. That's the positive exhortation. The negative side of this is what doesn't happen, what doesn't come if they don't cooperate. No international support for Syria. No international recognition or legitimization of what Russia and the regime are doing. And with respect to the UN, we're not leaving the UN alone. And the we here is not just the United States. It is a collective we of critical countries in the region, in Europe, in the international community, working side by side with the Secretary General, with his special representative for Syria, to make of Geneva more than the, as you correctly say, uh, place for minimal, at best, uh, progress. And all these tracks are in place simultaneously. When you say that Russia has committed, though, you, and you say that with an emphasis that sounds like they've really committed, and yet why would, why would we have the Astana process, for example, if they were really committed to the UN 2254 Geneva process? I, I, I just find I, I'm somewhat cynical. Um, Astana was intended... Uh, and with the recognition of the United Nations as an observer, and we were observers as well, uh, to do a different thing. It was to bring down the levels of fighting uh, last year and to establish de-escalation zones. That was it. That was the goal for Astana. And the moment it became clear to the United Nations and to us that Astana was moving beyond that very tightly focused objective to broader quasi-political or outright political steps, to challenge Geneva, um, we ceased our participation, lowered the level, so did the United Nations. Well, I think that describes, I think you've described in part why, where my cynicism on this comes from, just the fact that this set of circumstances about international negotiations in which the U.S. found it necessary to withdraw because it was headed in a direction that didn't really make sense within 2254. Well, let's turn to those de-escalation 
uh, zones. The U.S. agreed to uh, a, a zone in the uh, south near, near Jordan, in the southwest near, near Jordan. And the goal was to protect from foreign influence. But on various reports, it has allowed Iran and Hezbollah to funnel weapons into that area for a pocket of ISIS to remain and for al-Qaeda forces to entrench. Uh, this doesn't sound like the, the vision of a zone free from foreign influence is, is being realized. Uh, is there a way to um, correct the misdirection of the, the goal of this de-escalation zone? The, the goal of bringing down the level of violence, which was extraordinary uh, and threatening both to Jordan and Israel, at the time the initial zone was established, before the Memorandum of Principles was signed, uh, was largely achieved. Uh, I will note, with the recent exception of a small pocket to the northeast of that zone uh, called Beit Jan, uh, where there was extraordinary levels of violence uh, and presence of al-Qaeda-associated forces, by and large, fighting and violence in the de-escalation zone came to a close. There is an ISIS pocket or an affiliate of ISIS in that area which is not covered, uh, not protected by, not shielded by that zones. And there have indeed been activities conducted against the leadership uh, of the ISIS affiliate in that small zone. Uh, with respect to foreign forces, at the time the Memorandum of Principles was signed, all of us involved, and the all of us, I must say for the record, were, were Jordan, the United States, Israel, recognized that we had a key objective here, which to get a commitment on the part of the Russians to a goal which was extremely important for all of us, the displacement of both Republican Guard Corps, Quds Force, and Hezbollah positions. Not all that many in terms of people, but challenging because we saw no reason for those forces to be there associated with the conflict in Syria. We believe they were there to prepare for an enduring presence and an enduring threat to Jordan and Israel mm -hmm. on the Golan front. Uh, we, Israel, the Jordanians, have repeatedly noted to our Russian colleagues that many of those positions remain in place. The Russians acknowledge that that is in fact the case. Uh, this is not a satisfactory outcome. And we, all of us, in our separate and collective dialogues with Moscow, continue to reinforce this is a commitment by Russia, and we expect it's commission, a commitment that will be fulfilled. It has not been comprehensively to date. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Chairman Corker. Thank you for being here, and thank you for your commitment to the United States and our future. Um, I, I have to admit I'm frustrated. It's kind of like watching reruns of the news for years. Uh, Assad has always been a bad guy. Russia has always used Syria and has always been a driving force in Syrian policy one way or another as far as we're concerned, as far as the Middle East is concerned. If I'm hearing right, and I want you to correct me, but I, I, I'm very correctable. My wife will tell you that in a heartbeat. Russia is the problem to get to a point of a solution in Syria. Is that not correct? Both Russia and Iran have the fundamental uh, support for the Assad regime that has allowed that regime to survive. Each of them 
presents a unique challenge. Russia, from the standpoint of that ongoing support militarily and politically for the regime. Iran, because of its behaviors in and through Syria. Well, when you say Russia and Iran as if they're two different countries, and they are, but they're basically the same player in terms of their interest in, the, in Syria. Is that not correct? Well, Senator, we certainly hope that that's not correct. We hope and we base our approach to Russia on the assumption, which we don't hold out there as a vague concept, but pointedly note to them that their interests should not be the same as that of Iran. We cannot imagine how Russian security interests over the long term for the region, for Russia itself, match the ambitions and hegemonistic drive of Iran over the long term. If there's a short-term coincidence of interest here, uh, that's something for Russia to justify and explain. We don't see how it can be a long-term interest. What does hegemonistic mean? Seeking domination. I learn something every day. I, I never heard that word before. That's, that's helpful. Well, my, my comment is this. So I, I, when I say Russia and Iran are the same, they have parallel interests, if not uniquely aligned interests. I know we don't want a two-track process. We don't want Astana and 2254. We'd like to see one process. Until we get to one process, you can never hope to have one solution. I, I, it's the way I look at it. Is there a catalyst that we can cause to take place, an action of some type, that might prompt the necessity of making a decision to stick with one or the other and not both? As I noted, we have uh, lowered significantly the level of our participation in Astana, as has the United Nations, uh, because of our concern, uh, recognition. Astana has moved well beyond the purposes for which it was created and which we supported. But you ask, how do we bring this to a single track, which has to be Geneva? And the answer is the Secretary General, not the U.S. government, the Secretary General of the United Nations has the power to legitimize or not, support or not, any purported process or track said to support the Geneva 2254 process. The Secretary General, and I'm not putting words, I think, in his mouth, is deeply uh, reserved with respect to the Russian assurances regarding Sochi. Uh, without UN validation, for this track, the Russians really are on their own, and I am not sure that is a place they want to be. They're gaming this. But our position has been clear to them. The UN's position has been made very clear to them. They have an opportunity in the days ahead in Switzerland to demonstrate a different credible intent, which can give some credibility to their assertions about Sochi, not in our eyes, but in the eyes of the United Nations. Whether they do that or not is up to them. But the challenge has been posed. Well, it would just be my observation, based on the hearings we've had in this whole process in Syria during the tragedy of the last five to six years, in particular, in particular the last two years, that the Russians have always been the other factor. No matter what the issue was, that we, they were on the other side of whatever issue we were on as far as Syria was concerned, whether it was Assad and for Assad and we were against Assad or whatever it might be. And until the Russians are, are committed to a solution, a one-track solution. There's not going to be a one-track solution in terms of Syria. Is that a fair statement? I think that's a very fair statement, Senator. So then I'll amend what I said earlier, which you corrected me on. Russia is the key to getting to a one-track to get us to a solution. It is indeed, sir. And that's, if we 
elevate their responsibility or their role and the responsibility of carrying that out, we might have a chance to get to, to one, one negotiating point for a future for Senator, we have been trying at every level of this government and the UN and the international community to put Russia squarely in front of exactly that responsibility. Thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin. Um, thank you for this hearing and um, thank you for your leadership. Uh, along with Senator Rubio in passing uh, the Syrian War Crimes Accountability Act uh, through this committee in June, uh, I think it is important that we continue to make clear to the world community that we intend to hold accountable uh, Assad and his regime uh, for their horrific crimes against humanity and that we do not step back from a commitment uh, to human rights and accountability as we try and untangle this incredibly uh, complex, uh, difficult um, strategic situation in Syria. And thank you, um, Senator Cardin, yesterday for uh, releasing a, an important um, report that details Russia's malign actions um, to undermine democracy throughout the Western world. Um, and Ambassador, thank you for your long um, service and for helping us better grasp some of the contours of administration policy. Uh, I too am struck that the Department of Defense declined to be represented in this conversation. Uh, I will agree uh, with Chairman Corker um, that there was a seamless handoff from one administration to the next, um, but qualify that by saying um, with regards to the fight against ISIS, specifically the caliphate, that piece seems to have gone remarkably well. But I do not see a seamless handoff, if anything, the opposite. When it comes to refugee policy and support for refugees and for democracy and governance, the resources needed by the Department of State and USAID in order to do very difficult work, not just in Syria and the region, but globally, um, and the sorts of um, decisive actions, the willingness to use the sanctions authority this committee and this Congress gave this president strongly bipartisan new sanctions authority to push back against Russia for its malign interference in our election and their interference with our allies and their actions in Syria and a refusal to use new sanctioning authority against the ballistic missile program, human rights violations and regional support for terrorism. There have been some designations and I welcome them. I only hope there will be more because I think the, the situation in southwest Syria, which you were just discussing with Senator Merkley, by which Iranian proxies now have a dozen positions just over the border from our vital ally Israel and Jordan is not just untenable, unacceptable. And I appreciate the, the optimistic uh, view that's been laid out about a positive path forward through which there might be UN-sanctioned and supervised free and fair elections involving the millions of Syrians outside of Syria and displaced within Syria and a, a credible process for free and fair elections. But there are moments when aspiration seems delusional. And I am concerned by some of the things we've discussed today that there are clear signals that this administration intends uh, to declare victory against ISIS and remove itself uh, from the Syrian conflict. Um, we seem divided. Um, on this um, committee in terms of our views about the importance of remaining engaged on the ground. Um, I think this is a valuable conversation for us to have uh, with you, sir, as well as with senior representatives from the Department of Defense and other entities uh, within the executive branch that are vital to our really understanding the situation. But I am alarmed that Iran has successfully 
um, injected Hezbollah and succeeded uh, with Russian support uh, and sponsorship in sustaining Assad um, and in transforming um, some of the um, Syrian forces um, into the, excuse me, some of the Shia militias in Syria, they are beginning to turn them into a Hezbollah in Syria for the long haul. Um, I would be interested in your view, sir, about how, let's just assume that there's a real chance that Russia isn't acting in good faith here and isn't going to meet its commitments. And let's just assume um, that our leverage, which I respect, of withholding a commitment for reconstruction dollars is insufficient. How do we prevent a situation in Syria that mirrors the tragic situation in Iraq where ISIS emerged because there was a vacuum? How do we prevent that from happening? Senator, we absolutely contemplate the kind of uh, alternative outcome that you just laid forward. And the president has committed as a matter of strategy that we will not leave Syria. We are not going to declare victory and go. And that is not my opinion. That's the president's strategic judgment. We're going to stay for several reasons. Stabilization and assistance in the vital north and northeast. Protection of our allies, the Syrian Democratic Forces, who have fought so valiantly against ISIS in the northeast. Uh, try to work to help transform the political structures in that area to a model for the rest of Syria and capable of being credibly represented in a, a new Syrian state, but for other reasons as well, including countering Iran and its ability to enhance its presence in Syria and serving as a, a weight, a force, able to help us achieve some of those broader objectives that we've been speaking about during the course of this hearing. Now, your posit of what happens if all of these approaches fail to succeed success. I, I rarely comment for reasons you'll understand on hypotheticals, but I will say this. Uh, any meaningful strategy towards Iran's malign behaviors, whether in Syria, Iraq, or elsewhere, will require a full toolbox mm -hmm. spectrum of measures involving all of the agencies and assets of the U.S. government and ideally active support from critical allies in the region and outside. And I won't go beyond in my commentary on that. But that's what will be needed. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. I, I might just, <clears throat> in conclusion, say um, I really appreciate the, the great and strong work of the chair and ranking. I only hope that the president uses the tools given him by Congress to demonstrate engagement against Iran and does not leave the Iran nuclear agreement, the JCPOA, which I think would further distance us from our vital partners in that work. There is a constructive path forward here. We'll know within days whether he's choosing to take it. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Resch. Thank you. Um, in response to Senator Coons, I, I'm not so sure that the committee is uh, uh, divided on engagement on the ground. I, I think rather than that, I think the frustration here is that people are willing to do that. We want to know what we're doing where we're going, what's the objective, what's the strategy to get there. And, you know, I've been listening to this for years and years on this committee. Nothing ever changes. I mean, it's, it's just murky. Um, before you can resolve a problem, you've got to understand it. Uh, you've got to have some clarity on it. And it's just not here. Uh, we, we, uh, I, I've listened over and over again, and I, and, and I appreciate your candid statement that you and your colleagues uh, have approached the Russians on what do you people want? 
where 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 are we going here? And uh, uh, it, it's it's confounding. It really is. I mean, I, the, the longer you deal with the Russians, you, you you conclude how inept they are. We had, as you know, on on the Intel Committee, we're doing a long standing. Uh, uh, deep dive into what the Russians did as far as our, our uh, elections are concerned <clears throat> without going into the classified stuff in the most recent uh, public hearings we had, it was it, the, the, the Russian ineptness w was, was stunning. Uh, the, if, if indeed they were trying to affect the elections, they were running ads that ran against each other, that were counter to each other. That, uh, uh, and again, it leaves you with what, what do they want? What, what's their objective? What is their strategy? And so uh, I, I guess I'd ask you, what, can, can you give us in, in a short, clear statement what you personally believe that the Russian strategy is as far as Syria is concerned? Uh, Senator, in a, in a different setting, I would be happy to elaborate on the multiple layers of what we assess to be Russia's objectives and interests. But in this open hearing... But you would let, agree with me that until we understand that, we can't really get our arms around uh, a uh, strategy to move forward on our behalf. We try to reflect in our dealings with the Russians all of the assessed interests that they have in Syria. But in this open session, I can simply say that I believe and can note the Russians want to be able to present to their own people a victory in Syria, a political victory that's clean and nicely tied and wrapped, and a military victory that's equally clean and comprehensive. Neither of those two objectives, frankly, are reflected in the reality of Syria at this moment. Neither that military victory uh, nor a political victory. The best course for Russia I say this in a hortatory fashion, would be to work in active support of Geneva, of 2254, where they will have allies, colleagues, and support to achieve a meaningful political resolution in Syria, which at the end of the day doesn't threaten Russian interests at all. Actually, we would argue, supports them over the long term. Uh, but I can only note that as a hortatory point. Well, um, surely... The, the objectives that uh, you've just described that are aspirational, certainly they can't be so inept as to understand that those are, are, are transitory. They're, they're, they're not uh, achievable in the near future, in the long future, or anything else, given the, the, given the state on the ground right now. We try to point that out to them. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Good luck. Um, you know, you know the, once ISIS came into the picture in Syria, it gave us an opportunity to have a clear objective and to, to do something about ISIS, and we did it. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of people that are concerned about slippage uh, as, as we shift uh, uh, gears going somewhere else. Uh, I think that's a legitimate concern. I don't know how... Uh, I, I don't know how that plays out. The one thing that we do know is that certainly ISIS is going to rear its ugly head somewhere else. Where, where do you think that's going to be? Um, it's not a matter of speculation. What we've seen in northern Iraq and in northern Syria, uh, central Syria as well, is ISIS has suffered tremendous defeats, not just loss of territory and assets, but also loss of fighting cadre in many of the urban battles that were fought. 
but many of its core leadership and cadre avoided the fight, left, moved to areas that were not as directly challenged, the Euphrates Valley, uh, the Mosul campaign in Iraq. And they remained present, and they remained coherent. And we have seen both in northern Iraq and we are seeing in northern and central Syria uh, reassertion, episodic, but reassertion nevertheless of an ISIS challenge. I would note that some weeks ago, uh, six small towns along the middle Euphrates Valley were retaken from pro-regime forces on the southern or western side of the Euphrates by ISIS elements. This fight is not over, and I'm speaking about the real combat fight here. Um, we are convinced that with time, they can indeed be enduringly defeated, to use that, that rubric, which I think is quite appropriate, but not yet. Time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yes, sir. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks, Ambassador, for your uh, enlightening testimony. I agree with comments that the Chairman made earlier that it is a good thing for us to step back and sort of celebrate the battlefield successes of U.S. military and coalition partners against ISIS. And I do view that as somewhat seamless between the two administrations with continuity of military leadership, continuity of the basic on the battlefield plan. Um, it's, it's hard to celebrate too much because the scale of the humanitarian disaster is so great and we know ISIS continues to create problems. They're going to just do things differently than try to control real estate, but it is important to recognize the good work done by our troops and, and coalition, um, and also the good work done by uh, U.S. Uh, AID, State Department, the U.S. humanitarian commitment, NGOs, Mercy Corps, one that has done a lot of work, the Syrian American Medical Society, has done tremendous work providing medical care, Syrian American physicians in Syria. So a whole lot of folks, both our defense our, our uh, diplomatic, but also our American NGO community have done yeoman's work, and it is important to recognize that. As, as we are entering into somewhat of a new phase in Syria, I've had a set of concerns, Mr. Satterfield, I just put on the table, I'm not going to ask you about them, about sort of legal authorities for military action going forward. Um, the missile strikes against Syria in April of this year, I inquired formally of the administration about legal justification for the strikes, and they eventually provided a letter giving a domestic justification, but no international justification. And we had a wonderful hearing recently, and one of the witnesses, John Bellinger, and I went back and forth a little bit. I didn't think the domestic justification was sufficient. He asserted that it was, but he did point out that the letter gave no international law justification for the U.S. Uh, military strikes, and we're still waiting for an answer for that nine months later. And I'm, I'm additionally concerned when I read reports that the 2000 troops that we have in Syria, their mission may morph to be sort of a counter-Iran mission. I wonder about the legal authority to remain in a country against the will of the government of that country for a mission that deals with another country. We're going to have some additional uh, legal questions about that. I wrote a letter to both Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense on December 19th raising a series of questions. I'd just like to introduce it as an exhibit for the record, Mr. Chair. Without objection. And I'm likely to pose some of the same questions in, in QFR follow-ups. Um, the one question I wanted to ask you about was the Kurds. Um, the Kurds in northern Iraq have been some of our best partners. They're having their own sets of challenges with the Iraqi central government. Your, your expertise and your jurisdiction encompasses a pretty wide swath. The Kurds in northern Syria have been excellent partners with our military and others, but the work that we've done with the Kurds in northern Syria has created all kinds of tensions with our NATO ally, Turkey. And I wanted to get your sort of 
big picture forward-looking thought about the way we handle a continuing a partnership with the Kurds and, you know, in honor of the work that they've done and their place in the next chapter of Syria uh, with this challenge that we have with Turkey's uh, suspicion of any partnership that we have with Kurds in northern Syria. Senator, uh, we very much understand uh, the Turkish government's and security forces' concern with the PKK association of many of the elements of the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, as we deal with stabilization in the north and northeast with the SDF. Part of that stabilization is the emergence of a different kind of local governance-based political structure, which cannot be labeled Kurdish in, in, in an ethnocentric or ethnic-dominated sense, but a multi-ethnic mix, Turkmen, Kurd, Arab, because there are many areas of the northeast which are majority Arab populations, not Kurdish at all. We see receptivity. Uh, significant receptivity in the terms of the leadership of the SDF in how they transition and move beyond what they have been in the past and the associations many of them have had in the past, which Turkey finds so objectionable, in order to be able to participate in the future of Syria. Now, that participation of the peoples of the north and northeast of Syria is a big swath of population, of assets, both hydrocarbon and agricultural, uh, and people. They need to be part of the future of Syria. They want to be part of the future of Syria. But on this point, there is a coincidence between the Secretary General's concerns, Russian concerns, and our own, is that how do you see this political transition in the North and Northeast take place in a manner that mitigates the Turkish concerns about Kurds qua Kurds and the more specific and understandable concern about a PKK terrorist connection? We are very much focused on this, but this is a work in progress, and I'm not going to be able to tell you that a month or two are going to see a resolution. But what's good is that the SDF leadership understands it's an issue and are working on it aggressively. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Just on the outset, and I've been watching some of the hearing on TV before I came here, I'm encouraged to hear that irrespective of JCPOA, there seems to be a strong consensus that that does not grant Iran immunity from sanctions on non-nuclear activity, uh, of which there is no shortage of things to go after them on, and on, under which there are already existing authorities on human rights violations, on ballistic missiles that can target Israel and, and, and their other regional allies of ours, on uh, giving missiles to Hezbollah and, and, and now the Houthis and, and uh, sponsorship of terrorism, cybercrime and attack. And uh, so I think it's really important that that, uh, and by the way, I think it's also important for us to make clear, Mr. Chairman, and, and this committee, I think, has talked about this in the past, those Shia militia in the region, in Hezbollah and Syria, uh, they are agents, asymmetrical agents in direct, under the direct or indirect control of the Iranian regime. If we were to ever be attacked by any of these forces, we should make abundantly clear on the front end that we hold Iran directly responsible for the loss of life or property of the United States, our citizens, our personnel abroad, whether in the military or at the State Department, in our facilities. This little game they play where they use other people to attack us and one degree of separation is something we should make clear on the outset. We will hold them responsible for it. So I think that's, that's important to lay on the record. Now, on this issue of, of Syria, it is good news. You see the map of the ISIS territory held two years ago at this time and what it is today, and that, it is great news that ISIS territorial uh, control has rapidly eroded over the last year under this administration. Here's the bad news. 
It hasn't been replaced by things that are much better. Um, Al-Nusra, uh, Al the Al-Qaeda affiliate, whatever they changed their name to recently, um, they're still around under pressure, but they're still around. We know that Hezbollah now has a very vibrant presence in Syria and continues to have one. We know that Assad forces are reinvigorated and, and a, a appear to be victorious in many parts. Of course, we've already talked about Iran's presence there, both directly and indirectly. But there's also been a lot of questions. I think Senator Rich asked, what are the motives of these two countries? Iran's are pretty transparent. I mean, they want that Shia arc and, more importantly, that land bridge to Lebanon and over to Hezbollah, uh, which, by the way, will be a major contributor to the next Hezbollah-Israel war, which sadly appears to be a question of if, not when, uh, given both the indigenous capabilities that Hezbollah has developed and, and their history in the past. But on the issue of Russia, I think their motives are pretty easy to understand in any setting. You don't have to reclassify stuff to know it. They, one of the things they seek to achieve is to present themselves as a better, more reliable, and more predictable regional partner and power broker than the United States. It's an argument they've made to Egypt, Libya. We've seen it in Iraq, even in Jordan, even in Turkey, which is a NATO member. Even Syrian Democratic forces uh, have been, to some extent, seduced by this promise. And I guess my question is, as you look at all this and we talk about it, I think the fundamental question is, what is our seat at the table in Syria? Why would we be, what gives us a seat at the table in any future conversation about the future of Syria? Our presence in a significant what, piece which, of Syria, our, mili presence? our military presence associated with the SDF in a critical and very significant piece of Syrian territory. Well, hence the is problem. A factor. And, and we're grateful that you're here today, but hence the problem with this. You just said that what gives us a seat at the table in a negotiated settlement or some negotiated path forward in Syria is our Department of Defense presence, and they're not here today. In, in part, Senator. What also. Well, what's the other part? The other part is our role in the international community. We lead, we shape, we direct, and I use those terms advisedly, the like minded community. And it is that leadership... Like the United Nations? No, I am speaking of the like-minded nations on Syria. Uh, some dozens of countries which hold in their hands the potential resources to rebuild, reconstruct Syria, and who politically hold the power to deny or to grant legitimacy for any resolution in Syria. So, so our seat at the table is the Department of that. Defense, from whom we did not hear from today, on an issue where it's, the guys with the guns matter. So that's number one. And number two is our ability to get other nations around the world to join us as leverage on the Syrian regime. Okay, uh, that, that, my, my other question is, so what is our argument, both to those within Syria and in the region? What do we say to Saudi Arabia, to Egypt, to Turkey, to Jordan, to these countries? How do we say to them, what is our argument that the United States is a more reliable, more predictable, and more decisive regional partner than Vladimir Putin? When, when, what do we say to them when, they, when, they, when we reach that test? It's the United States that protects the Emirates, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, with our systems, with our technicians, with our military personnel, against the threats which Iran's malign behaviors pose every day to many of those states. It's our commitment, not Russian importunings, not Russian sales, which determine where a country places its strategic confidence and trust where it matters, which is defense of their homelands and their interests. And that trust, and I would include Egypt as well in this, resides squarely with the United States. Russia would like to present a different picture. They play a weak hand very well. 
but it is a weak hand. And we should not overreact to the fact that at the end of the day, we are the party looked to for fundamental defense, fundamental support, not Moscow. So I know I'm out of time. So in closing, the, the core of that argument we make to our regional allies is we sell you weapon systems and we provide, in some cases, basing capabilities in your countries. We help them defend themselves against a very real threat in a fashion which no other party can. Through the Department of Defense through the combined efforts of the U.S. government, including the military. Who is not here today? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Ambassador, for uh, being here and giving this testimony. Um, very briefly to the Chairman's comment about some members of this committee um, being uncomfortable with an increased military presence, uh, more involvement in Syria, while also raising concerns about a decreased diplomatic presence. Um, I, I, you know, I think to many of us, those are, those are two very consistent worries in the sense that to the extent we have additional troops on the ground, the worry would be that they are placed at greater risk if we are at the same time withdrawing from the diplomatic and political conversations that are most relevant, that if uh, those conversations result in uh, the place becoming more rather than less dangerous and we have thousands of troops on the ground, then uh, it endangers those troops. Uh, and so um, I, I, I think some of us can do a better job of trying to marry together those, uh, those concerns. Um, I just don't, to Senator Rubio's line of questioning, I just don't think it's credible to suggest that our seat at the table right now comes uh, through any means other than our military presence. We have signaled in so many different ways that we are no longer interested in being in the lead with respect to the political uh, and economic future of Syria, whether it's these diplomatic talks that are happening without the United States or the State Department's insistence uh, on a 30% cut to the funds that they are appropriated to try to do big reconstruction uh, and stability deals around the world. I think we've telegraphed to the region that uh, we are not going to be a player in the way that we have been in the past diplomatically and politically, and thus our uh, primary leverage there comes through the insertion of more and more troops, which uh, continues to beg the question as to why we don't have a representative from the Department of Defense here. In their absence, let me uh, just ask you a question about the future disposition of our troops. Um, how do you explain what the conditions for the withdrawal of uh, American military presence is there. We are in a combat role. I mean, we have 2,000 troops in the middle of the most dangerous place in the world. Regardless of whether they are on the front line shooting the guns, they are in combat, given how close they are to uh, very, very dangerous places. So what are the conditions by which uh, we bring those troops home? Is it the military defeat of ISIS? Is it the withdrawal of Iranian-Iranian-backed forces? Is it free elections and political stability? How do we communicate to our constituents uh, what the end game is for uh, the U.S. military presence there? The president, as I noted, is committed uh, to remaining uh, in Syria to achieve all of our strategic goals there. Now, remaining means in a political, diplomatic, military sense, not based on calendars, but based on assessment of conditions. The enduring, genuine defeat of ISIS is one of those conditions. 
stabilization efforts moving forward successfully in the north and northeast in that major piece of Syria is one of those conditions. And one of them is our broader assessment of where the political transition, where the Iranian projection of influence in and through Syria stands. Uh, there is no specific calculus for this. There's certainly not hard quantitative numbers that can be attached. It is something, these conditions, that we will review on a progressive basis over the time ahead. So I, I, I would argue that you are operating under a flawed premise, which is that there is any future for Syria that does not involve a substantial role for Iran. And so it worries me that you are telling the committee that our military presence um, in Syria will run so long as all of our conditions, until all of our conditions are met, including the withdrawal of Iran and Iranian forces. Senator, what I said is among the assessments we will be making is where broader issues in Syria stand. So let me, so what is the, so what is the functionality of military presence vis-a-vis -vis our non-ISIS priorities in Syria? Senator, that would have to be provided in a different setting. Um, well, not, wait, wait a why can't you? Wait, wait a minute. That, that, that won't pass muster. I, I'm sorry. You, you can generally state what the purpose of our military is beyond ISIS without getting into any kind of classified materials. We are deeply concerned with the activities of Iran, with the ability of Iran to enhance those activities uh, through a greater ability to move materiel into Syria. And I would rather leave the discussion at that point. I, I would just uh, interject here, and Chairman did. It's hard to understand your response with even the most broad use of an AUMF covering anything close to what you're saying. I take your comment, Senator. I'll, <laughs> I would share those concerns to the extent that your answer suggests that the future role of the U.S. military in Syria uh, will be aimed at addressing Iranian and Iranian-backed military presence. There, I think that's an important conversation for this committee to have. Thank you. Senator Udall. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, and let me um, also say that, that I think that uh, one of the things that would have added to this discussion and, and inquiry that we've had here is have the Department of Defense here. And I, thought, I hope um, that you'll take that back. I know that you and uh, Secretary Tillerson and, and uh, Secretary Mattis have these discussions all the time. I think it would be port important to have them here and have them with the American people. Now, um, in Senator Murphy's question about seeing where the end is in this, you talked about we, we have to make sure that all of our strategic goals are accomplished. Can you tell me what those strategic goals are? They are, first and foremost, the enduring defeat, elimination of ISIS as a threat, not just today, but into the future. Well, let me, let me stop you there, because I think everybody who has discuss this, believes that ISIS is going to morph into one thing or another over time. And so how do you, how do you, um, how does this not become an unending war? Through the next step, which is stabilization 
and a political transformation in Syria, which is the only measure that is going to prevent, Senator, exactly what you described, the reemergence under a different name of another Sunni Islamist challenge or violent extremist movement. Those are the critical goals for Syria, but the goal with respect to Iran is the progressive constraint, diminishment of Iran's ability to project in and through Syria its malign behaviors and influence. Could you explain for us what you believe Iran's interests are in Syria, why they're in Syria, and what their, uh, what their reasons are for doing what uh, they're doing in Syria? First and foremost, to have a platform from which they can more aggressively and competently support in a qualitative fashion Hezbollah and the Hezbollah missile challenge, which is both a threat to Israel and also, in the Iranian regime's view, a defensive asset for the regime in Tehran, to build a greater and more permanent presence in Syria itself that will endure beyond any transition in regimes, so that Iran is in a position to wield influence or threat of influence over regional parties outside of Lebanon, Jordan, Saudi Arabia. It's a platform for behaviors not confined to Lebanon. <clears throat> Shifting uh, in, in a little, uh, uh, in another direction, we've also opened an, up a genie uh, by supporting Kurdish forces in the region. Uh, does the State Department or the Pentagon have a plan to ensure that arms provided to Kurdish forces do not end up in the hands of the Kurdistan Workers' Party or the PKK, uh, a recognized terrorist organization? Yes, Senator. We have been extremely attentive to that issue. But I will remind that at the time, the Kurdish forces, the SDF, stepped forward uh, as partners in this fight. They were the only ones to do so. No other state, no other party, despite our offers and importunings, were willing to take up this battle. But we fully understand and appreciate the issue of the PKK and the terrorist threat to Turkey, to others in the region. And, and, and how do you expect Turkey to react if arms do end up in the hands of the PKK? I would expect Turkey will make its own conclusions with respect to its own defense interests, which is why we are as attentive as we are to the issue of weapons provision, uh, reprovision, uh, to Kurdish and other elements, Arab, associated with them in the north. Um, as you're very familiar, President Trump recently uh, recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, uh, and there are plans to, to start uh, moving there. Uh, this is a very contentious issue, again, among all Muslim-majority countries, including our ally Jordan. In your opinion, has this decision helped or hampered our relationships with countries in the region? And how are terrorist organizations in the region using this U.S. action to recruit new members? I believe uh, virtually all of the states in the region have made at a formal governmental level clear uh, their concerns with this decision. And I would not characterize their position beyond the eloquence with which they have already presented it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> Thank you. I, I, just to follow up on the Murphy-Udall questioning, and the, um, I do think we 
should have a classified briefing to talk more fully about what our military may or may not be engaged in. And Absolutely. Um, I, I would say I don't think you view us as not being diplomatically involved. Is that correct in Syria? Absolutely. So I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't think Secretary Tillerson feels that either. And so I think any allegations to that end is felt differently, at least by the State Department. Maybe people think we're not robust enough, but... Mr. Chairman, if, if I may briefly on this exact point, we are deeply involved diplomatically at every level with every player in this situation. There has been no diminution of our engagement or its effectiveness. Uh, and so, yes, I certainly agree with your conclusions, but I would make another statement. Um, you measure efficacy of diplomatic performance by the quality of the engagement, not by the number of shoes on the ground. Now, that's a lesson learned from Iraq. Uh, during a difficult period. I believe we are quite effectively deployed in Syria in terms of our partnering with the U.S. military force in the north, as well as our engagement with the Jordanians and in Jordan in the discussions that take place there, our Vienna Channel, Geneva Channel discussions with the U.N., with the Russians. This is thoroughly engagement of our diplomatic assets around the world. But thank you for the opportunity to make Well, this. listen, just again, to follow up on Senator Murphy's line of questioning, I, I, we do need to sit down privately and talk more fully about what may be contemplated. The, the Defense Department, uh, with all due respect, did give us tremendous runaround as it relates to this hearing. Uh, the reason that was given uh, for them not being here is they had not yet briefed um, the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, nor their counterpart in the House, and until they had done so in Syria, they didn't feel they could come here. But uh, it also may sound like, just based on your answers, there's a, maybe a little contour change in what their efforts are on the ground, and I think we need to certainly hear more fully of that, and I would agree that if it's what you said, and I'm not sure exactly what you said, but if it's what you indicated, um, certainly uh, the authorizations are not there for that kind of activity. So. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, there'll be follow-up questions. Um, hopefully you can answer. Uh, those will come in by the close of business. Uh, hopefully you'll answer those promptly. We thank you for your service to our country and, and your great testimony today. Thank you, sir. Meeting's adjourned.